0: all right hello there peers and friends my name is devin and we're gonna go on a short journey through uh the shoemaker and the tea party um myself and maddie my partner in crime will give you kind of the rundown um gonna cover five uh core ideas uh in my part which is kind of like the redefinition of the revolution is one two is uh Kind of the idea of the tea party then a little bit after that and now um three is going to be the revolution redefined and then four is going to be who and why certain people were in the revolution and then five is going to be its rediscovery so uh without further ado i guess uh, i'll just kind of jump right in um and the first kind of aspect is you know really thinking about how you know the revolution was redefined in order to pull back from the popular forms of uh, dissent and the popular forms of you know dealing with government in that time period was you know to kind of read a the list here was effigy burning You know tar and feathering mass processions liberty trees liberty poles so just really aggressive in your face and spontaneous protest so that shift really um occurred following the revolutionary period of trying to get rid of that idea of pushing back spontaneously and violently against uh, the ideas or the uh, principles the government was pushing forward so um it's interesting because in the book it really talks about uh these forms of protest and ideas are passed on in kind of like the public memory through um oral histories or through you know the interaction to have between your family members um but in that early period um and we're talking about like 1790 to about 1810 we don't have the uh, backdrop of a education system or really historical societies that are interested in this raw sort of uh unstructured unfiltered version of how the revolution went down you know we've seen it through our myriad of uh, books you know especially in taylor with people just going all out you know which, after the revolution has finished up and after we've established this new form of government, or the founders have, uh, they don't want, you know, necessarily, well, some of them don't, you know, you have the Federalists and then you have the Jeffersonians. Um, but, you know, the Federalists really don't want this explosive, radical change to come through and shake everything up, where it's like we're trying to build a system, we're trying to build the system. Um, so really just kind of dialing back what it means to publicly dissent and what it means to partake in a democracy and to protest, uh, was really the important theme, um, towards the beginning of the book. Um, and then it it kind of shifts to really zone in on, um, you know, the destruction of the tea, which, uh, Maddie's going to go definitely a little bit. Uh, deeper um, with. But one thing I want to bring up is um, how the destruction of the tea really complicates the narrative, is what uh, the book uh, brings up. Um, to quote from page 106, it says, um, It was unmistakably willful and uh, proactive, aggressive, quasi military, destructive, and uh, Karna the list. so kind of like carnival like like celebratory a party a little bit crazy so it's the idea of taking away the kind of martyrdom of bostonians and the martyrdom of the uh, american revolution as a whole you know and transforming it into when you look at the actual event it transforms it into a uh, escalation an intentional escalation by a small group of people um so we really have to come to grips with that theme um in the documents and that theme in our own history which isn't really fun to address um and we've all experienced sort of uh, this weird relationship with the tea party itself um but uh a little bit after that it moves on to the idea of forgotten kind of like forgotten events and how you know as Tom pointed out the revolution wasn't held in hybrid art or as an important event um, because in the public memory people could hold on uh, to it through the shared events and experiences of their family members, predecessors or themselves such as Hughes but uh, as far as the social or the political memory um there were no commemorations of you know for instance the old south meeting house just gets repurposed and used for different businesses eventually becomes a church again um starts to dilapidate nobody really knows or cares the livery stump gets uh just kind of forgotten about um there's even a plaque on the old south meeting house which lists off almost everything that it's been except for during the revolutionary period when it was an important uh, location for <laughs> spreading the ideas of democracy and, you know, really getting the revolution going. Um, so we have this, uh, kind of moving away from and distancing and more of a dilapidation of the very, uh, material history of the revolution, which no one really had the means or the desire to take care of or upkeep. Um, so it was honestly kind of a pretty sad thing um and i believe it's uh page 116 where um they talk about uh years 1770 to 1775 weren't on the building's placard so very interesting um but one thing i want to spend a uh, more important time on is the shift in the desires of the political parties to move this revolution away from the populist movement that it was um in the book it talks a lot about uh it's chapter 4 where it talks about merchants mill owners and master mechanics um earlier on the federalists are willing to support the mechanics and individual people who contributed and were tradesmen that were impacted by the revolution and fought the revolution for themselves. Um, it's a time where earlier on, they're still demonstrating in these mass movements, but by the uh, late um, 1700s and the, uh, you know, uh, early 1800s, the Federalists really start to co-opt the uh, support of the mechanics and the support of the working class and the more populous people. To help install a federal government a large state apparatus which slowly uh shuffles and pushes out the more populist elements of american society um and we don't get to see those um meeting houses used to full effect you know local governments are no longer as powerful as they had been and the federal government and the state legislature are the kind of the uh gatekeepers of democracy and they're holding the scales you know the scales of justice and and the the gavel that really promotes democracy in the society so it was an interesting um shift um let's see yeah that combined with the lack of schools or really any um, means of you know educating lower class people uh, to get more involved in the democratic process really shuffles out the possibility of any populist movement. So yeah, I'm trying to stay uh, on point with time here. Um, it's difficult to keep up with everything. Um, but another really good point from that, uh, section in the aspect of, you know, proper Bostonians, um, it's on page 124. Um, Two quotes is you know federalists and uh, upper class people thought of themselves as proper bostonians um viewing boston as the cradle of liberty and the athens of america so um a topic that's brought up is kind of like cultural identity and history but one thing i want to impart is really culture as history so the culture shifts from being as expressive and as rebellious and as free and as open as possible to, you know, a culture of institutions. And the history really shifts to one of, this is the foundation of our institutions. This is the process that we we sought to protect, expand and ingrain in our society which starts as British liberties and then moves into the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and everything that we all heard and learned about and kind of loved growing up. So the shift from culture and history to culture as history and the federalists kind of uh, co-opting the populist movement and using its momentum to get this federal system in place. And then the need for the populism is gone. So i'm really getting close to time here um but i have to talk on uh, hughes a little bit and you know just to quote straight from the book like hughes is the last leaf and the last bit of living history um so my thoughts on that is uh he's important because he's the closest thing to, to objectivism and the reason I say closest rather than is, is because as we saw in the first portion of the book, Hughes's memory is a little bit off on events and he thinks people are places that they aren't, but he is still more objective because his memory is probably less politicized than a lot of the people that are presenting and adding ideas and concepts to the history to achieve agendas. So. While, yes, memory is faulty, people such as Hughes are important um, because he gives that more objective view. Not perfectly objective, not absolutely objective, but more objective than a politicized version of history that is used to achieve certain ends. So with all of that said and me going way over time, I'll just drop three quick questions. The first is why was it important for the American people to reforge the image of the revolution. The second question is, did the nation regain or lose something by taming, quote unquote, taming the revolution? And third is, do we need to focus more on figures such as George Robert 12's Hughes? Um, And do we have tools to observe history without such figures. So thanks for the time, and hope you have a good day.
1: So what I find to be the most important theme of this section of the Young Book is in regards to identity um, and Popular memory, private memory, and creation of the American mythos. Um, That's a lot, so I'm going to try my hardest to break it down. So to start with um, the themes of popular and private memory, this is brought up pretty early in Young's um, book, and it basically talks about how uh, private memory, to quote, is what an individual remembers about an event that he or she has experienced and observed public memory, on the other hand, is what a society remembers collectively after most private memories have faded or disappeared. Um, this I think is incredibly important because in this book we have great examples of private and popular memory. We have the private memories of men like Hughes, um, were told to come forward and kind of tell their stories but we also have the popular memory that created this mass commemoration effort in the 1800s um and that's really important because it kind of informs what we know as a modern audience now about the revolution if you think about it we have kind of had to at least I know that I have kind of had to relearn a lot of what I knew about the revolution because I had been so informed by popular memory, by the American mythos, that there is a lot I wasn't sure about. If you think about it, we genuinely omit a lot of details about the revolution. We teach it, especially to children. As a kid, we're taught about, you know, Paul Revere's midnight ride and, you know, the glorious tea party, but there's a lot that we do not get Kind of talk, we don't get taught uh, the nitty gritty details about, you know, lynching and silencing loyalist voices in the press because these are kind of what we would call un American things, right? Um, but they happened, they really did. And they're kind of omitted from this grand American ethos, and it definitely started in the 19th century. So going kind of back and looking at this in a more broad way, popular and private memory. Create history. They they inform you know what is written about, what is talked about, and what is remembered, and this directly creates and influences the American identity. Um, and if you think about it, the American identity has a lot to do with the original things of the Revolution, um, even if that is obscured by the American mythos. And I'll get to the American mythos in a second. But if you think about it, right. The American identity is built purely off of themes like liberty and freedom and, you know, self-made man and take life in your own hands. And I think that the Tea Party, and I think Young would agree with me, the Tea Party is the perfect example of this. Um, Because the Tea Party highlights class divisions more than anything. And it highlights Mm. sort of actually taking action. If you know if that makes any sense to quote Young on page one hundred and one, the act, the tea action was the most revolutionary act of the decade in Boston, and yet it was not remembered until the eighteen twenties and thirties, um, which is really interesting to me. And if you think about what the actual tea party represents in class divisions, it represents the destruction of something that yes was enjoyed by all and was you know partook by all. But only the upper class actually made a ritual about it. Um, They, you know, they had silver tea plates and teapots and kettles and this and that. And that sort of class division really creates a schism between, yes, we all share this one thing, but there's no way that a fishmonger can enjoy it in the same way that a nobleman can, right? Um, And so the destruction of this is incredibly symbolic, and it's no wonder that... um, the second party system in the Whigs highlighted this in the 1800s to kind of create this American foundation myth. Now, to go back a little bit and talk about American mythos, I genuinely think that the Tea Party and, you know, Paul Revere, these, these kind of key themes that we all think about that were definitely sort of, not creative, but exaggerated in the 1800s are... They serve to make the American mythos, and if you think about it, things like the Boston Tea Party, I mean, first of all, that's a fantastic name, like it's, it really grabs you, but things like the Boston Tea Party serve as an amazing foundation myth, because as I just mentioned, they of tackle all of these disputes of you know class division and and you know taking things in your own hands and going against the law you know that's a really good foundation myth and it does a great job at creating heroes however we don't get that commemoration until decades after the actual revolution Um, And I think that the creation of this American popular mythos was a big way of just creating the American identity. Um, It is something that they had been trying to do since the beginning of the revolution, but they've been having kind of an issue with it. Um, And I think that Young kind of points this out, is that, like... The founders tried very hard to create an American identity founded in government. And to do that, they had to distance themselves enough away from Britain to create their own government, but it also had to be functional. Um, However, that did not make the, the most amazing identity. What makes the most amazing identity is a story an amazing and awesome and super cool story that has, you know, men dressing up like natives and going and breaking open crates. And that sort of thing creates an American identity that can last for centuries. And it's, it creates an American identity that is very, very hard to dispute. Um, yeah, and I think that's one of the main points that Jung brings up throughout the second half of the book is that really it is about... The creation of the American mythos. It, it turns the revolution into less of a thing that happened and more of a tradition, a, a mythology, a story, and one could argue into more of a religion.